0: Before you listen to this podcast, just a quick word on a special offer for new PTO subscribers. We have some free print and digital one-year subscriptions to the excellent Tribune magazine for new $8 patrons. New $5 patrons can get a 50% discount on a Tribune subscription, and until the end of February, all new $3 patrons can get a 60% discount on the Verso Books ebook of Mario Tronti's classic, Workers and Capital. To take up these offers, go to patreon.com. Forward slash pole theory other.
1: The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Lisa Widdin. We spoke about her new book, Authoritarian Apprehensions, Ideology, Judgment and Mourning in Syria. We talked about the neoliberal turn in the country under Bashar al-Assad before the start of the 2011 uprising, the means by which the Syrian regime maintains control aside from overt coercion and patronage, and the relevance of Louis Althusser's concept of interpolation to the Syrian regime's strategies for reproducing itself. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2, and by becoming a $5 supporter, you'll also get access to regular bonus mini-episodes. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is The Ballot, The Streets or Both, From Marx and Engels to Lenin and the October Revolution by August Nimpts. NIMS's groundbreaking scholarship on Lenin's electoral approach, now available in a single affordable paperback volume, is the most comprehensive account of how the Bolsheviks approached the institutions of bourgeois democracy as part of a revolutionary strategy. In the US, the book is available from haymarketbooks.org. Customers in the UK can find the book at all the usual online retailers. Lisa Wadeen is the Mary R. Morton Professor of Political Science and the co-director of the Chicago Centre for Contemporary Theory at the University of Chicago. Her books include Ambiguities of Domination, Politics, Rhetoric and Symbols in Contemporary Syria and Peripheral Visions, Public's Power and Performance in Yemen. Her new book, which was the topic of our conversation, is Authoritarian Apprehensions, Ideology, Judgment and Mourning in Syria. The book is out now from the University of Chicago Press. One thing I was really struck by reading the book was, you know, when we see a lot of mainstream reporting, particularly in the broadcast media regarding authoritarian regimes and and one-party dictatorships, such as the al-Assad regime in in Syria or, or say, North Korea, where it's particularly striking, I think, there seems to be a tendency to fall back on, on an extremely simplistic way of understanding those regimes and how they reproduce themselves and, and you see this in the way in which people will talk about those regimes. You know, People will say, oh, it's just like 1984, with the implication that what's going on is a lot of explicit violent coercion or, or quite heavy-handed propaganda. And from your book, one of the main things I took really was the complexity of ideological manipulation and, and the various ways in which the Syrian regime maintains control. And also the extent to which, you know, very large sectors of the population and are not merely the most privileged sectors are, are complicit in the regime's reproduction. And the other thing I was, I was very struck by was that, again, those kind of regimes are often treated as if they're outside of history and they're not prey to broader global socioeconomic trends. So, for instance, I think, I think some people might be surprised to learn that before the uprising of 2011, Syria could be characterized as, as a neoliberal society with all the valorization of entrepreneurship, competition and NGOization and so on that we think of regarding neoliberalism under democracy. So, first off, could you talk a bit about what the what the neoliberalization of Syria entailed and how was the, the regime able to maintain control in the period prior to the uprising?
1: So I really appreciate that question, and of course there are several questions in your opening uh, comments. But to get to the neoliberal aspect of Syria's autocracy, you know, authoritarian rule in Syria was long-standing, and its stabilizing effects were entrenched by the late 1980s. But its neoliberal variant began gradually to emerge in the 1990s with so-called selective economic reforms, followed by rather ambitious privatization initiatives that culminated in the official adoption in 2005 of what was euphemistically termed a social market economy. And this was devised by an emerging Professional managerial elite that sounded like the IMF with its language of good governance and stakeholders. And this social market economy involved encouraging private sector investment, it involved stressing the virtues of individual philanthropy and making provisions for offloading risk and responsibility onto what they called civil society. shifting the burden of responsibility away from the state onto individuals and family. So in Syria in the 2000s, circles of privilege expanded and contracted at the same time, which resulted in countervailing tendencies that congealed some differences. So, for example, the gap between rich and poor widened with more people appearing more prosperous in both major cities, Damascus and Aleppo, while producing new bases for inclusion. And what I mean by that is that there were access to information technologies, increased possibilities for travel, and an expanding circle of financial and social networks reflected in the first families the exemplification of cosmopolitan living. There was also a growing familiarity with urbane tastes, if not necessarily the means to indulge them. And these were quotidian novelties that constituted an important shift under the son Bashar al-Assad. So they introduced some measures of economic reform. They played catch up in the glossies with global trends. And that was part of what changed. The professional managerial elite also broadened to include global advertisings, local subsidiaries, and members of Syria's regionally successful, very celebrity-conscious drama community. And this latter group could be called on to produce messages celebrating a modernity that performed both on and off the screen, a version of the good life consonant with the one being exemplified by the regime. So a shift away from the wooden, stale party language, the ruling party's language of old, onto a much more global, glitzy version of the good life.
0: I mean, in terms of that shift, how much of that plays out simply at the, at the rhetorical level? Because am I right in thinking that, that, that you would argue that once the uprising happens, we see something of a, of a return of the old regime, not, not in all respects, but, but to some degree in, in the return of figures associated with the more sort of ex- explicitly coercive regime of, of Bashar al-Assad's father?
1: There's definitely more of a recourse to brutality after the uprising starts in a way that I think surprises even activists who had come to believe in the hype of a kinder, gentler regime But one of the things the book tries to do is to show how the Syrian regime managed to produce in that first decade prior to the uprising, a so-called silent majority of citizens invested in stability and fearful of alternatives. And those folks, that ambivalent middle, the gray people, as they're often referred to in Syria, were extraordinarily important in re-securing the regime's possibilities of managing or recalibrating the regime's possibilities for rule. So I do think that, and I I borrow a lot here from the cultural theorist Lauren Berlant, uh, her version of an ideology of the good life operated among key metropolitan populations to organize desire and quell dissent. And it's important to note that Syria's good life entailed not only the usual aspirations to economic well-being, but also fantasies of multicultural accommodation among sex and a secure, sovereign, pride-inducing national identity. And it's these visions and inducements to compliance in the first decade of President Bashar al-Assad's rule that were unevenly saturating and in flux, Alex, as you're suggesting, that defined the terms in which neoliberal autocracy was created, sustained, and I want to argue in the context of the uprising, ultimately reconfigured.
0: In terms of this shift to a more explicitly neoliberal form of of, a governmentality, but obviously combined with the old party structures and the old dictatorship, why is it that within that appeal to modernity that democratization doesn't become a part of that, or you know is that perhaps you know in the situation of 2019 almost a silly question because we we can see this this it, it feels increasingly as if those one can separate out democratisation from neoliberalisation and we, we perhaps saw this in china where there was an expectation that china on the path to marketisation that would therefore lead to uh, democratisation and It's almost curiously as if we're sort of doubling back to the situation in in somewhere like Chile, where obviously we had the first sort of iteration of neoliberalization under dictatorship.
1: Right. Well, it's an excellent question. And I guess I have three responses to it. And the first one is that in some ways, the kinds of calls uh, for democracy that we saw so eloquently articulated or voiced in the context of the early days of the uprising are I do think part of what this kind of opening enabled but secondly the creation of neoliberal autocracy in the Syrian context and I would argue more generally as you say there are plenty of neoliberal autocracies in the world. China is an obvious one. But the creation of neoliberal autocracy implied two contradictory logics of rule. So the one cultivating desires for market freedom, upward mobility and consumer pleasure, and the other tethering this advancement or these advancement opportunities to citizen obedience and coercive regulation. And this contradiction was mediated and managed in pre-uprising Syria. And I would argue in other places like China as well, in part through a local image world, and in the case of Syria, that image world wedded private capital to regime control in a way officially epitomized by the seemingly glamorous, urbane, and assertively modern first family. But people live with contradictions all the time, so I'm not suggesting that the contradictions themselves generated the uprising. But I am suggesting that smoothing over the contradictions is part of the ideological work of any regime. And because this ideology was unevenly saturating, it worked for that ambivalent middle much more than it did for folks who ended up being the first movers in in the uprising. And the third thing in mentioning Chile, for example, or other places around the world now, is that one of the book's efforts is to think about Syria in a broader global context in which the seductions of authoritarianism and neoliberal autocracy, in particular, are are coming to the fore, not simply in the Middle East, but again, as a global phenomenon. We're seeing this in ultra-nationalist movements in Eastern Europe and parts of Central Europe. We're seeing this in kind of, you know, as you mentioned, parts of Latin America. We're seeing this in India, and we're certainly seeing this in the United States.
0: And going back to that point about the contradictions, so in terms of the production of of a degree of popular consent amongst Syrians, or even perhaps just just forms of apathy that prevented sectors of the population from going over to the opposition, you talk about the, the concept of disavowal, and and the way in which people can recognise that, that a given idea can be can be recognised at one level as false, and yet acting as if it were indeed the case at the same time. And you you refer to this formulation of "I know very well, yet nevertheless," yes, that, that characterises this kind of kind of disavows. Um, so can you talk a bit about how this has has served to buttress the regime and? How it's even served to structure the belief, uh, beliefs and practices of the Syrian opposition as well, to some to some extent.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, thank you. I, I think it's probably part of what I find most fruitful about the book is an invitation to think about the work ideology does, and one of the most important dimensions of that work, as you were suggesting, was. That ideology operates as disavowal. And of course, this comes from, or the phrase I know very well and yet nevertheless, je sais bien, mais quand même, comes from the famous theorist Octave Manani, who noticed how people would rationalize their lives, acknowledging and disavowing simultaneously. This phrase, I know very well, and yet nevertheless, sort of exemplifies this mode of disavowal that I'm trying to get, a distancing from accountability that has implications that I think are quite profound for politics. So in the case of Syria, the disavowal typically works like this. I, I know very well that the regime is incorrigibly corrupt and yet, nevertheless, we can build government-sponsored civil society organizations that truly empower citizens. That was a very common, and there were you know, obviously various permutations of that. Or I know very well that there's no going back to the way things were before the war, and yet everything will resolve itself. Or taking an example uh, that is explored in depth in the book, I, I know very well that Sunni gangs did not visit our village in the night, and yet nevertheless they could have or among secular activists in the first two years of the uprising itself, I know very well that they're violent Islamic militants, uh, but nevertheless, they're not really a problem or I'll act as if they don't exist. So the key thing here is disavowal goes beyond denial in that the problem calling for judgment is at least posed. That's the first part of the clause. So in disavowal, the power of ideology comes into, I think, especially bold relief with subjects hailed into a position where the realities that can no longer be denied can still be dismissed. So they're addressed and then dismissed. And in this sense, disavowal expresses the contradiction that it simultaneously repudiates.
0: What do you think is the the psychological gain of that, I mean, is, is, is it mostly centred around the question of of avoiding costs? So as you say, one could sort of believe that Syria is, is on a path towards liberalisation and, and perhaps even democratisation at some point in the future, because one doesn't want to deal with the actual cost of going down that path, which would, which would entail serious opposition to the regime.
1: You know, sometimes it can be seen as a post hoc rationalisation. But I think more interesting is to also think of it has something that's going on in everyone's present, and this is not specific to autocracy. We are ambivalent much of the time, and it seems to me that those of us who care about politics, and I gather You and I are pretty much on the same page in terms of identifying as leftists who care a great deal about the redistribution of income and remaking our world in ways that allow for human flourishing. And when we think about how we go about organizing or how we go about appealing to folks, I think understanding that most people are ambivalent would help us understand how it is that we might make our appeals more salutary, more compelling, more persuasive. So ambivalence here is really a toggle in the Syrian case in any uh, the is a toggle between an attachment to order and a desire for reform. And I do think had the opposition been more attuned, and I don't mean to tell people what to do that sounds weird, but a sense of attunement to the way in which people were vacillating might also allow all of us who care about remaking our worlds or to produce a kind of and you know renty in terms of world making experiences might think about and have a certain sense of compassion for the way in which those attachments to order, for example, to a certain kind of status quo, conventionality matter, as do the desire for reforms. So that ambivalence or those of us who are ambivalent about things are also available for mobilization or persuasion. It might take work more work than we're, we're used to doing in some ways. And it might take something called representative thinking. This is Arendt's term for the capacity for an enlarged mentality, for thinking as yourself in a place where you are not. And so back to the Octav Manani disavowal aspect of things I know very well and yet nevertheless, to me, that's already indicative of or it showcases the sorts of ambivalences that we grapple with in our everyday life. And it gives us a kind of, in some ways, it seems like an impasse, but it also gives us a way to scale that impasse, it seems to me. Because there is not simply a denial, but a form of address that then gets folded back into the thing that's safer. The, the world that's safer to inhabit.
0: And regarding that failure to recognise people as as ambivalent, I mean, perhaps uh, do, do you think that maybe? is reflective of whether we're talking about the Syrian opposition or if we're talking about, say, leftists in in the United States or the UK, that we often fail to recognize our own ambivalence regarding structures of power and the extent to which we are invested in them and and the extent to which we experience enjoyment in things that at a different level we might critique. So, you know, for instance, you know i think many people on the left it's, although they may you know people may disagree about this but but are often heavily invested in in consumer culture and all the fetishization of it that goes along with it and we sort of know at one level oh this isn't you know this isn't really going to satisfy me but at a, at a different level it does satisfy
1: Exactly right. And I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for that kind of ambivalence and our failures, I think, has left us to theorize it properly in a way that would allow us to to move forward. Uh, Thinking about our enjoyments, thinking about the ways in which we want to have our cake and eat it too, you know, which for me has always meant just generate more cakes. Um, But (laughs) um, that's somewhat uh, facetious. But yeah, when the stock market falls as much as in some ways, we'd like to do away with stock markets and, and think about alternative worlds to capitalism. At the same time, we're all invested in the stock market and mm. or, or, you know, we, we want to be able to embrace far reaching climate change policy, but aren't willing to do the kind of everyday work that that would entail. So, I mean, I think there are a lot of ways in which this ambivalence that I describe in depth in the Syrian case is much more generalizable or portable or is at least an invitation to think otherwise.
0: One of the concepts you use in the book regarding the regime securing support for itself or or, or securing degrees of apathy is the concept of interpolation, which which comes from Louis Althusser. Could could you talk a bit about the concept of interpolation and and its relevance to the situation in Syria and, and how you adapt it in your book?
1: Yeah, I would be happy to do that. One thing I did want to say first, though, is that it's really less about apathy. And less about indifference, and really more about ambivalence than it is about apathy. And consent was another word that you used, and I really want to think about. In some cases, there you know there are uh, loyalists, and there we can think about consent. But you know, consent is obviously a very vexed term, and I think acquiescence does a better job of. And acquiescence need not be about apathy. Sometimes it is, and certainly there are instances of apathy. But there's also, you know, a lot of things, like I talk about fake news at one point, where, you know, there's a polarization of beliefs, there's a kind of entrenchment of Beliefs that confirm one's own already, but there are, and those produce siloed publics of one sort or another, but there are also ways in which people get confused, and that confusion is an alibi for non judgment. So I think that apathy and consent are glosses on the situation, but aren't as accurate as, say, acquiescence and ambivalent. But you asked a question about interpolation, and of course that comes from Louis Althusser's landmark essay, Ideology and Ideological State Apparatuses. Just very briefly, there he stages what has become an iconic scene in which a policeman calls out, hey, you there prompting a passerby to turn around, having recognized him or herself to be the one hailed by the call. And so for Althusser, it's in this event of interpolation, in this hailing, in this mode of address, this reciprocal recognition on the part of the policeman and the passerby, that the passerby becomes a subject, someone subjugated to and the subject of political power. So one familiar way to look at ideological interpolation or address is as a form of ritual affirmation, a set of discursive practices that with varying degrees of resonance secure and reproduce routine attachments. And so examples of ritual affirmation are everywhere in our ordinary lives in practices of citizenship. Like singing the national anthem, or or enduring it being sung at sporting events, or signing a protest petition, or affixing a postage stamp featuring you know the nation's flag onto an envelope. The, the poster of Uncle Sam, in the United States, pointing at passersby and declaring "I want you," the anonymous citizen, you know, the presumed spectator to join the army, is a particularly succinct example of political interpolation in the U.S. context, and even a pacifist revulsion upon encountering such a poster does not save her from being interpolated into the world of American patriotism, for example, for it's through her very repugnance that she's being made into a peace-loving subject. And subjects in market economies are constantly being interpolated as consumers in the drumbeat of advertising, celebrating status distinctions, or in succumbing to the allure of of looking like a fashion model without believing that any such transformation could or even should take place. So the degree of reciprocity that's presumed by between two agents in this interchange Does not require belief. I don't have to believe that I'm going to look like a fashion model by succumbing to the allure of fantasizing about being a fashion model. But these market inducements nevertheless matter and they take ongoing work. So there are three features, basically, of interpolation. One is of ritual affirmation. Another one is of, you know, at least a degree of reciprocity between two agents. And these two points tell us that ideology operates as a set of repetitive socio-political interactions. But the book wants to argue that there's a third and less noticed but crucial dimension of interpolation which came to the fore during my field work. So for interpolation to be complete, the issuer of the hail, of the address, must also recognize the responder's recognition of it. So subject formation in the sense of becoming a jaywalker in the context of the police officers, hey you, or a proletarian or a consumer in the context of capitalism, or, you know, returning to Syria, a citizen in the context of neoliberal autocracy, depends not only on people signing up for the system, but also on the authority's response or non-response to the people signing up. So in other words, the uptake of ideology in this sense of the consummated exchange between the hailer and the hailed is secured differentially and not simply because people are variously liable to recognize themselves as different kinds of hailed subjects, you know, implying a kind of coming alive of individuals in the law, but also in the lawgiver's recognition of the citizen's response, which is critical to how the contours of inclusion and exclusion are drawn. And in the years leading up to the uprising, this third dynamic the way in which authority responds to the initial hailer's response. This third dynamic was frequently in evidence in the obvious unease some Syrians were made to feel when they did not fully live up to the regime's brand of modern
0: commodified
1: confidence.
0: Mm. And so it's it's almost as if you're dealing with an unhappy parent whose whose rule system and belief system you, you at some level agree with, but you're failing to to live up to it.
1: Well, certainly the metaphors of the family are very important to political authority. So that is one way to to think about it. And you know, I want to say also that you know, ideology obviously has a very long and vexed history. And I use it here not to refer to a party platform or a distinct doctrine, although it can be made manifest in discrete documents. But instead, I I do follow, and it's obvious from the uh, scholars whom I invoke, I follow a cultural Marxist tradition where ideology refers to embodied, affectively laden discourses that are conveyed in part acephalously through everyday practices.
0: Turning to a concrete case of that, I mean, and in the period prior to the uprising, you talk about Syrian subjects who were, you know, sort of hailed as good neoliberal subjects, people who would take part in a supposed cosmopolitan society in in which um, sectarian differences were not necessarily treated as as problematic in and of of, of themselves and, and a consumer culture, and that people whose lives were perhaps more collective in nature and and more explicitly religious in nature would experience that sense of failure in terms of being good kneelable subject. Is that a fair reading?
1: Yes, absolutely. And you know I, there were so many scenes like ones where you know, a family of seven dressed in conservative clothing would come to the center of town from the outskirts of Damascus to have pizza or ice cream at a fancy cafe. And where money wasn't necessarily the issue, but styles of comportment were the setting, the dress, the bearing, the dialect differences, and even the pronunciation of certain words invited kinds of invidious distinctions between citizens coded as country bumpkins, despite their newly acquired wealth, and the embodied dispositions, or what Pierre Bourdieu calls the habitus, of the regime's upwardly mobile professional managerial elite. And this disdain was palpable in public places where people of different background conditions were brought together. And you could hear the snickers of contempt audible, the comments on smells, the styles of comportment were you know, part and parcel of a grappling with new forms of commercialized living.
0: And those people who were perceived to or, or felt themselves to have, to have uh, failed to live up to the, the way in which the, re- the regime and the ideological state apparatuses were hailing them, did that straightforwardly feed into being more likely to join the opposition or was it, or was it rather more complicated than that?
1: I think that was one population that was attracted to the opposition. It certainly wasn't the only one, though. And again, the the relationship between, say, poverty and the willingness to join the uprising and the quantitative evidence available, and again, one should be cautious about of subscribing too much faith in, in that evidence, but If one looks at that evidence, one could see that the pattern is that there is no pattern, that there were some areas in which impoverished people joined the uprising and other areas where they did not. There were intersections among, say, sectarian considerations in parts of the country and and poverty And in other areas, not so much so. Regional distinctions mattered. The kind of divide between rural and urban areas also mattered. But again, the pattern is not an airtight one. And one of the points of thinking about interpolation here is to think about the collusion between regime and market, which produced a set of mechanisms for inviting and signaling membership, disseminating standards through which alternative choices for everyday existence, such as conservative clothing or intensified practices of piety and large family size, were deemed inferior, and that being deemed inferior had very little to do with wealth or not. So class was in flux in Syria in a way that income, at least, didn't map on to whether one could predict an area would join the resistance or not. There were plenty of poor people that stayed with the regime and plenty did not. That the mechanisms of anxious hyper-identification and a certain kind of negativity, which admits defeat and its very revolt. I mean, these kinds of dynamics were very much in play, and again, could not be reduced to simple economic determinants.
0: From the standpoint of politics in the in the UK or the United States, I mean, it's interesting thinking about the fact of there being these these populations within Syria, who their religiosity and, you know, some, somewhat different, you know, a way of life, which diverged from from the, n- the neoliberal ideal, how that was perceived as a problem. And obviously, you know, the elites in, in the United States or Britain wouldn't imagine that they have much in common with the Syrian government. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, but in that respect, it seems that they do, because clearly Muslim populations, say, in, in Britain, certainly are problematized in just that way, it seems to me.
1: Yeah, no, I think that that's right. And, you know, it's it's also one of those things where one can think about the ways in which, for example, there are plenty of people in the United States context, which I know better than I know the UK one, who don't seem to be acting in their own self-interest by, say, supporting Trump. In many ways, similar to, not clear to me why, there were a number of poor people in certain areas that ended up supporting the Syrian regime when it might have been much better for them to join the opposition. But that view of interest or self-interest is too simple, in part because interests are themselves incoherently related to one another. They're contradictory. So when you see signs in the United States that get the government out of my Medicare, well, to some extent, that's ignorance because, of course, the government is Medicare. But it also reflects a kind of incompatibility between an interest to not have government intervention on the one hand and an interest to be cared for on the other. And again, like ambivalence, I think that understanding or being able to Theorize the incoherencies which we all experience might be helpful, or at least there's an invitation in the book to think more deeply and in solidarity with one another about these kinds of incongruencies.
0: You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune Magazine. If you'd like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. And for a short time only, you can also sign up for free and discount print and digital subscriptions to Tribune magazine, as well as 60% off the Verso ebook of Mario Tronti's Workers and Capital. That address again, patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening.